Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I love that we just sang that. I feel like that's been my prayer all weekend of, God, I want, I want more of you. I want more of your love. I want more of your hope. Um, I want to catch a better glimpse of who you are, um, and I hope that as we leave these garage doors later today, after I'm done in the next, you know, 20, 30 minutes, um, that we get that, that we come away knowing more of who God is. Um, here's how I want to start. We are going to be um, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's where we're starting. So if you're, if you're new with us, we are going through the entire book of 1 Samuel, and then we're going to carry on in 2 Samuel in the spring. We like to preach through whole books of the Bible here, and that's what we're doing this year, and we're, this is week three, so if you've missed the past couple sermons, I'll reference a couple of them, um, but you can go listen to our podcast or our YouTube to catch up. They're really, really good stuff. Um, but today, we've got 1 Samuel chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So, it's going to be a huge thing, and I'm going to do my best to work through it with y'all, and um, with that said, though, we're just going to jump right into it. Normally, I I tell like a really bad joke to get y'all to laugh, and I'm not going to do that today. So um, some of y'all laughed at that, so that was really good. Um, hey, here's, here's how I want to kick off. There is a great quote by this old guy named A.W. Tozier. Um, his quote is that what the first thing that you think about when you hear God, the first thing that comes to mind about God is the most important thing about you. And I love that. And, and so I want you to do that. When I say God, what do you think of? When you hear a God and, and, and you picture something and an image comes to your brain and to mind, what is it? For some of you, it might be some cosmic, you know, divine being with his, his arms crossed and folded, looking down, judging the world. Um, for some of you, it might be a heavenly father who's looking down on you with delight. For others, it might be something different. But whatever that is, I want you to picture that thing. A.W. Tozier says that's the most important thing about you. And that alone, I could go a million different directions and preach a million different sermons on. But where I'm going today is that regardless of what comes to mind, you are picturing something. And I would like to think that if you're anything like me, then you don't even get a full, you're you're nowhere close to a full picture of who God is. And what we're kind of tackling today is I don't think that we understand who the God of the universe is, what life with him looks like. What, what experiencing his joy, his peace, all those things look like. I don't think we understand who God is. And so that's what we're, we're going to be um, unpacking today. And a quick little recap on, on where we've been so far on, on the past couple weeks. In short, here, here's the setting that we're in. Israel is God's people, God's chosen nation, um, and that's who we're dealing with. And they seem to be straying from him, straying from the one true God, also known as Yahweh. And they're worshiping other gods, which we're going to learn it's pretty uh, stereotypical of them. It's pretty classic. But more specifically, um, there's a family of prophets. There's a high priest named Eli, and he's got two sons. One's name is Hophni. The other is Phinehas. And they are all dishonoring the way of God, specifically the sons. But Eli really isn't any better. And they're doing things like 
taking the sacrifices that are supposed to be made to God, and they're actually eating them. They're, they're indulging themselves. They're doing everything that they want to do, leading people astray. They're sleeping with the women that are serving in the tabernacle, some, some really corrupt stuff. And God tells Eli he, he's going to punish his family for being corrupt and dishonoring, dishonoring his name and leading his people astray. And then God reveals himself to a guy named Samuel, which is the prophet that this book is named after. Um, and he tells Samuel all that he's about to do to make himself God and his power, his presence, um, undeniable to the entire people of, of Israel as a result. So Samuel tells Eli what God's going to do. Samuel tells the rest of Israel what God's going to do, all that God told him. And that's where we're picking up in chapter four. So this is chapter four, verse one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We got scripture on the screen. It says, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us? Why has he defeated us before, today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, both Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, before we go any further, um, we need to understand two things. First, who the Philistines are, and then second, what the Ark of the Covenant is. So first, the Philistines, all you need to know, I won't give you a ton of detail, they're just the bad guys, um, the bad guys of the story. They are pagans, though. This is kind of important. And by definition, pagans are people who worship the universe and everything that, that makes it up. So all the elements that make it up. Things like the sun, the moon, the stars, rivers, and also things like wine and partying and sex and work and the harvest and literally anything goes. They can make a, anything that they want to their God. Um, and so that's who the Philistines are. They do not worship the one true God of Israel, Yahweh. Um, now, the Ark of the Covenant is not to be confused with Noah's Ark, which was a boat, um, is a wooden chest. So picture a wooden chest just covered in gold. It's very beautiful. Um, that's what the covenant, um, the Ark of the Covenant is. It's covered in gold. It held a few things inside of it. There was like a lid that you could open, and inside of it were some things that were really important to the people of Israel. One of them uh, was the Ten Commandments that, that God gave them. And some, here's some really important info about the Ark. The Ark is where the presence of God dwelt, and how and where he chose to interact with his people. You see, before that, he had chosen to interact with uh, a guy named Moses through a burning bush, some of y'all might be familiar with that story. Um, in other ways, he chose to interact with him by revealing himself in his presence as a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. But here, right now, he's choosing to uh, attach his presence to this ark. That's how he wants to engage with his people and how he wants his people to interact with him. So it's the ark of the covenant. And now here's, again, another very important note that I want to highlight about uh, the ark. Very specific. God's presence, and it was intended to stay within the tabernacle, which is just picture a big tent designated as a place to worship God, um, intended to stay at the very center of the tabernacle in a place called the most holy place. It's later called the Holy of Holies in the temple whenever that's built, if you've heard us talk about that before. But here's the thing. Only the high priest could go into that place. Only the high priest um, could enter into that. 
uh, and we learned the high priest is Eli in this story from the past couple weeks. The high priest and the high priest alone is the only one who can go into the most holy place and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, for the people, um, and interact with God's presence there. And he could only do it once a year. So it wasn't just for anybody. He was the only one who could do it, only the high priest, and it was only once a year. And, and it was so serious because the God, God's presence was there. He was so holy that um, people would literally attach a rope to, to the high priest's ankle just in case he entered in. And if he didn't do any of his cleansing rituals right and he wasn't holy enough to stand before a holy God, he would drop dead. And they would pull him and drag him out of, of the tent because they weren't allowed to go in themselves. So that's how like serious this is. And something to note is, is that God is the one who, who set all that up. Those are his turns. That's how he chose to interact with his people and how he wanted them to engage with him through the high priest once a year. Very, very important. Um, all specifically set in place for God. And so here's what that, that context tells us about what we just read. We see that the Israelites are just straight up misusing God. And I'm going to throw some of this stuff on the screen for you. And I'm putting misuse in quotations because you can't really use God or you can't really manipulate him. But we see that's what they're, they're doing here. Let's kind of kind of point it out. You see it just knowing the context of the ark, right? The high priest is supposed to be the only one in the most, going into the most holy place. And yet people in the army are the ones who go in to retrieve the ark. And then we see that both Hophni and Phinehas, who are not high priests, are also both there with the ark. They're already breaking rules that God had set in place for his people to interact with him. Then you see it again um, in response to their defeat, right? Which on first glance, you're reading that, they lose, and you're like, it makes sense. It looks like they're doing a pretty good job of relying on God. They lose, and they go to him like, hey, we should get the ark. Like, God could help us. He could turn, turn things around. But again, they're not even supposed to go get the ark in the first place, but they do, um, and it happens after they lose the battle. It's like, oh, and then they suddenly realize, oh, we have a God on our side. We should use him. So we see them totally try to manipulate God, totally try to mis misuse him. Their reaction is to turn God into— um, a sort of a good luck charm or a last resort when, when nothing else is going their way. And it shows us, all that goes to show us, shows us that uh, they are compartmentalizing God. They, they are quite literally, they wanted to keep him in that wooden chest, in a tiny little box. They're reducing him, his glory, his power, his very presence to a little box, which wasn't the purpose of the ark. They are totally misunderstanding what the ark was for, and how he wanted to engage with them. And then verses 5 through 9, I'll just paraphrase for you. Basically, they bring the ark out. Um, it says all of Israel kind of gets like a confidence boost because of it. The earth resounds with a mighty shout they give. Then it says the Philistines are afraid, and they recognize the ark. They recognize the ark um, as the god of the Israelites, who also conquered the Egyptians, another powerful nation, and brought plagues upon them. And so they're like, oh, that god is not to be messed with. This is the real deal. So they're shocked and they're afraid, but then they kind of give themselves a pep rally while things are looking up for Israel. Um, and it says they take courage and they don't want to become slaves to the Hebrews, the Israelites. Um, and they say, uh, let's be men and fight. And they quite literally win the battle. And Israel loses a second time. And that brings us to verse 10, which says, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated again. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, both died. And I'm reading that part just to show us that God stays true to his word for, for those of us who were here the past two weeks. 
we saw God tell Eli, I'm going to punish your family. Both of your sons are going to die by the sword. That just happened. And then the next few verses, the rest of chapter 4, if you want to go read on your own, I'm just going to paraphrase, show us how God punishes Eli's family. Eli dies. Phineas's uh, wife, his, Eli's daughter-in-law, dies giving birth. It's this whole story, a clear story of how the Israelites try to misuse and manipulate God and, and the re- result of that. And that leads us to chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Um, right here, we're going to see that the Philistines misplaced God. So Israelites try to misuse God. Philistines are going to misplace God. They put him right up next to this God named Dagon. Um, and I made a really bad joke about how I pronounced that Dagon, like Dagon in the 9 a.m. Um, yeah, same thing. Three people left. Um, but Dagon is, is the chief god of the pagans. Remember, Philistines are pagans. They worship anything. Dagon is like their, their main god. They've got a ton. Just picture a room where they have these like little um, symbols and idols and statues all over the room of all their different gods. Dagon is the main one. And he's likely, uh, as a chief god, the, the god of corn, of the corn harvest. Maybe, maybe fish, kind of debated, but either way, those are both two of the, the popular crops and harvests of the nation that sustained them, and that's why he was a chief god. Um, and if he was a corn god, it'd be safe to say that he's a corny god. Um, yes! Okay, in all seriousness, and, and just a, a little side note for you, um, that really just goes to show you, I like to highlight that he was a god of corn, because it really just goes to show you that you can make a god out of anything, right? That's what the pagan people are doing, and, and that's just a side note for you to chew on. You can make a god out of anything. A god of corn, a god of fish. Anyways, they place the ark of God, the very presence of, of God, right up there next to Dagon and the rest of all, all of their other gods, just like he's one of many, um, and they can use him and rely on him and go to him whenever they need to. He's just a trophy. Um, and look at what happens as a result in verse 3. Verse 3 says, And when the people of Ashdod, these are Philistine people, rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground again before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were laying cut off on the threshold, and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now, kind of a wild story. And I'm sure if you're the Philistines, the first time you're thinking one of, one of two things. Dagon falls the first time. And you're thinking either A, man, this God that we just put up on the shelf next to Dagon, sounds like he might be trying to show that he's more powerful than our God Dagon. Or B, you might think it's a fluke. You're like, okay, so Dagon fell. He toppled over. Or like someone bumped him when they shouldn't have been walking around here. Let's just put him back up. And that's what they do. And then the second time, they had no doubt, right? They were like, no Away he fell again, and this time his head and his hands are both cut off. The second time, they realize that the first time he fell was just intended to humiliate them, right? To humiliate their God. And the second time was to be a clear and undeniable indication that the God of the Israelites was the one true God and only God, and that worshiping anything else was just utter foolishness. You see, back then, the head was made to symbolize um, and seen as the place of wisdom. And the hands were seen as the place of power. God knocked Dagon down, cut off both of those, dismantled both of them from Dagon, 
showing and proving that, that is a worthless, crappy God to worship, and it's foolish to worship it. Um, that's what he's demonstrating. And then the rest of chapter 5 is pretty, pretty wild. You can go read it in detail, but it tells us of a bunch of afflictions that the Lord then puts on upon the Philistines, um, and they're not pretty. It says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against them, which kind of echoes um, God plaguing the Egyptians. If you're familiar with that story, the plagues look very similar here. There's tumors, there's mice. It says that a deadly panic goes throughout all the land, and so they're in one city. They're in Ashdod. That's happening. God sends a plague on them. Um, they can't bear it. They're, they're crushing beneath it, so they, they're like, oh my gosh, this must be coming from the ark that knocked Dagon down. Let's just get rid of it. So they send it to the next city of, in the, Phil, the Philistine territory, and the same thing happens, and then they do it again, and the same thing happens, and God keeps bringing these plagues around, and a deadly panic sweeps throughout all um, of the land, and here's what I think is so, so striking about that. A few chapters earlier, or the chapter before, chapter four, you see one day that the Ark of the Covenant is brought out um, with a hundred thousand soldiers of Israel, right? They're all surrounding it, they're all there to defend it. They're all there fighting for it. And it is totally ineffective for them. They lose. They lose twice. They're defeated. And then just a couple days later, the same ark is just sitting here, and it's laying waste to an entire nation without a single soldier around it. Just a side nugget for you to hold in your pocket. I love saying nugget. Get used to it. Um, it I think that is fascinating. Hold that for later. We're going to reference it again. But... Um, pick up with me in chapter chapter 6. Um, it says that these plagues are hitting every city of the Philistines. This, is, this deadly panic is going throughout all the land, um, and it's been going on for seven months. And finally, admitting defeat, here's what happens in verse 2 of chapter 6. It says, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviner, diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what, what we shall send it to. Um, tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And the, the priests all responded, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And then the next couple of verses talk about the guilt offering that they make, how they're going to give due glory to the God of Israel. And then there's even a part where they're hoping that they don't turn out like the Egyptians and the plagues that are brought upon them. And then we pick up in verse 7. Um, the priests are still telling them how, how to go about this, uh, this thing. He sa they say, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke before. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put, it in, put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go, go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, which means uphill, it's in the land of Israel, so back to Israel. If it goes that way, then it is he, God, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not him and his hand that struck us, and it just happened to us by coincidence. And so it says, verse 10, the men did so. They took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors, resembling the plagues. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth, Beth Shemesh, back to Israel, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, 
and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh, the Israelites, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua and stopped there. Pretty incredible story. The ark has returned to Israel, but in a really interesting way, right? Let's talk about cows, milk cows to be specific. Um, anyone ever been up to the panhandle of Texas? Maybe, okay, none of you. It smells horrible because there's a ton of dairy farms up there. My grandma l grew up over there, and so I traveled up there a lot. Um, some of you from California, there's actually a lot of dairy farms in California and New York, which is kind of surprising. Um, but milk cows are made for what? Making milk, right? Untrained milk cows are not typically the kind of cow that you get to pull a cart. Typically, you want to choose like an ox or something that's a little more trained to do that and a little stronger and a little more disciplined to pull a cart. That's a little more normal. Milk cows are intended for making milk. And even if you did hook them up to a cart, if they went anywhere at all, it would be home to their little baby calves to go nurture them. Everything in their nature would tell them to go that direction to be with their calves. At best, you're just going to see them wandering around in a field with no direction at all. Um, that's not the normal behavior of, of a cow. So this is all just one big experiment and test of the Philistines to see if God is behind their afflictions or if it's all just one big coincidence, if it's all just one big fluke. Um, and if it is God who is already seeming to override natural laws by sending plagues upon them and doing unnatural things and, and afflicting them, then if he can do that, then he can also likely override the natural behavior of a, of a milk cow. And a cow that would normally wander around with no direction, he could probably override their behavior so that they go straight back to Israel. And they knew likely that, that was, there was no way that that would happen. They were just hoping that it was all one big coincidence, but that's exactly what the milk cows do. Um, and they go straight back to Israel, God showing that he is the one behind everything. And here, here's my takeaway from all of this, and it can be yours too if you want to write it down. I'm reading this, and I'm reading, you know, chapter four, chapter five, how he's doing all this. And my takeaway is that God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be manipulated by those who profess his name and confess that they're on his side, like the Israelites did. They're bringing him out, hoping that he can help them win a battle. He can also not be managed or manipulated by those who defy him, right? They're, they're realizing he's bringing down all these plagues on him, and they try and move him from one city to, to, to the next because they can't even bear it, and he can't be managed. He's going to do what he, he's going to do. He cannot be manipulated. Anyways, the ark is returned, and here's, here's the last thing that I want to highlight to you from, from this chapter. We're going to see that uh, the Israelites are just flippant with the holiness of God, even though they have the ark of the covenant back. Um, we just read how the Israelites rejoiced, right? We saw that, to, to see the ark return, and they're excited, as, as they should be. But then they grab the ark of the Lord, it says, they set it down, and then they start celebrating its return, which is good. But then some of them say, you know what? Um, they seem to say, I've always, I've always wanted to kind of get a closer look at the ark. After all, the high priest is the only one who ever gets to see it. It's always smack dab in the center of the tabernacle. I'm not allowed to go in. I've always wanted to get a closer look. Maybe I even peek inside at the contents of, of what's inside if I open this lid. Um, and so they open it up, and here's what happens. This is chapter 6, verse 19, right at the very end. 
It says, And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck them, struck the people with such a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They didn't take the holiness of God seriously. Again, God had already set in place, here's how I want you to interact with me. I am so good and holy that you, in your own sinful brokenness, cannot approach me just willy-nilly. And it shows us that approaching a holy and perfect God is no light matter, especially if we are a broken and sinful people, the opposite of a perfect and holy God. Um, so we've, we've seen how God is misused, tried to be manipulated. We've seen how he's not put in his proper place. Uh, we see how people do not take his holiness and, and treat his holiness seriously. Um, and it's easy, for me at least, it's easy to read this and think, well, no, duh. Like, you can see it clear as day. Of course they weren't taking it seriously. Like, of course they're making a mistake. Um, I, I can understand that they don't, I can see that they don't understand the consequences that are about to come. They're, they're making dumb decisions. Um, but remember, I don't think that we fully understand God either. And I think we make the same exact mistakes every single day. Let's just start with how, how we misuse God, right? And how we try to manipulate him. Think about it with me for, for a second. It is not uncommon, not uncommon at all, for us to long and desire God's power, right? That's a common human experience that stretches all the way back to the Israelites thousands of years ago to us right here today. Um, we're all familiar with, with the appeal and the attraction to the idea that there might be some way that God's power can be worked and manipulated um, to benefit me, to benefit my desires, to benefit my pleasures, to bring about my desired outcome. Um, I mean, if that can happen, if we can manipulate God's power to work for us in some kind of way, that's a very attractive thing. Um, let's use some classic examples and, and just think of when and how and what you pray for, right? The classic example for all of you guys in this room is uh, think of when you're coming up to your, your next exam, right? Like you're studying chemistry or something terrible like that, right? And whether you've studied or not, what and how and when are you praying, right? You're, you're probably praying right before this test, and you're probably praying in desperation, and probably for something along the lines of, hope the questions are easy, hope my professor's generous, and that they curve the grade, right? Like, that's pretty common. We all kind of get that. Or um, another example is, like, whenever TCU is three points down to a team we should not be losing to, like, what are you praying for then? Like, please don't make a fool of us, Colorado. Like, um, that is all a common experience we're familiar with. Or, more seriously, what about when you're just absolutely crippled by anxiety or overwhelmed with decisions and you don't know where to go, where to look at all, you're just completely stuck. Typically, you're praying for God to just simply keep you afloat or to give you a way out or maybe just give you a clear decision, a clear open door as if he's an, uh, a magic eight ball, right? We are not too different from the Israelites in this story who pull him out as a last resort when every, all their other options um, are used, right? We typically compartmentalize God. We reduce him to a little box and pull him out whenever we need him. We only run to him whenever we need a good luck charm or we're out of all of our, our other options. And here's the reality that I want you to hear. God, I've already said this, is not to be used. In fact, he cannot be used. And the moment that we try to use God as a good luck charm or a last resort 
is the same moment that we do not understand him. The same moment we try to use God uh, to benefit us and manipulate his power is the same God that we do not understand the purpose of his presence, of what life with him looks like, of how we're designed to be in a relationship with him. It's the moment we totally miss it. And we also can't even begin to understand God if he isn't even in his proper place at the center of, of our lives, right? Um, we see the Philistines put him up next to every single one of their, their other gods that they have, like he's just another, another one of them. And I think we do the same exact thing. Think about how often we think of the Christian life as God plus a fat paycheck. I want that one day, right? God plus a spouse. Like, I'll follow you, God. I want you in my life, but you better give me a, a wife and kids, right? I'll follow you, God, but I still also want to do this. Fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. God plus blank. How many of us, right? I have conversations about this all the time. How many of us fall into to the trap and the lie of believing that if we love Jesus enough, if we serve him enough, if we do our quiet times consistently and, and we're we're working through books of the Bible and we're talking about it with people. If we die to ourselves a little bit here, sacrifice this one thing there, and if we give up this one thing to God here that he's been asking us to, then surely he's going to bless us for it, right? And our idea of that is that that blessing looks a lot like our deepest desires and our wildest dreams. If I sacrifice for you, God, then surely you're going you're gonna to show up for me, right? And you're, you're going to give me this thing that I, I really, really want. That's how you work, right? And what ultimately ends up happening is that our view of the Christian life and discipleship to Jesus starts to look a lot like the American dream. And by doing all the right things, we assume God will bless our life with the American dream. And, and, and what we're doing is making a God out of things like, like the American dream or whatever you filled in the blank with, a spouse, a wife and kids, a family, a husband, a boyfriend, a, a fat paycheck, being CEO, whatever those things are, the God plus, you're making a God out of all those things um, and just putting God up there right next to them just to pull him out when you need to, just to use him and go to him whenever it feels right, whenever it's good, but as long as he's up there with all of these other things that we've, we've made gods of um, and when we need them and want them, and we are no different than, than those in the story here. And I think more than that, too, we, at least in my own life, I catch myself doing this all the time, am just so nonchalant and, and flippant with, with the holiness of God. Um, I don't take it seriously. I don't even take sin seriously in my life all the time. I have to constantly repent. And I think we, we do that. We are so pr prone to do the same thing of, of not taking our sin seriously. We think, oh, God, you are all about grace, right? I'll just sin a little bit here. You'll, forget, you, you'll forgive me. I'll sin a little bit there. I'll compromise on, on this thing. I'll compromise on that thing. Like, I'm saved. I know who God is to me. I know he's my, my, my savior. And I think that's so easy. And it is so true. Hear me say, it is absolutely true that we have a God who sees us in our brokenness and accepts us in our imperfections. He sees, he meets us right in the middle of our flaws, steps into the, the mess of our mistakes, and he says, I love you. Come, be mine. Come, experience grace and life and joy with me. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to fake it. I don't care about what you did last night or last weekend. I don't care what's been done to you. Get rid of the shame. You don't need it. Come be mine. That is so true. That is the God that you have. He loves you despite all of your imperfections and all your flaws. But here's the thing. He doesn't just meet you in your sin so that you can stay there. 
He asks you to come experience, walk out of those things. Come experience life and abundance and joy and wholeness, fleeing from those things. He doesn't just tell you to keep choosing sin. He calls us to live a life of obedience, a life of death to self and pursuing holiness and being formed into the image of his son, Jesus. And yet so often, again, we think, oh, God's all about grace. That's okay. I'm forgiven. And the reality is you are. You are forgiven. But his forgiveness, his kindness, his grace is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not to keep on on sinning. Romans 6, 1 through 2 asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you who died to sin still live in it? 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15 says, as God's children, do not be conformed to your passions, but as he called you is holy, you also be holy. For he has written, be holy because I am holy. And here, here's a, a bumming reality for you, potentially. You, in and of yourself, cannot be holy. You cannot muster up your own holiness or create your own perfections. You can't fix your life on your own. It is only through Jesus that you can do that. If you accept him as your Lord, as your Savior, you recognize that he died on a cross, dying a death in your place, paying for your sins, so that when the God of the universe, the Heavenly Father, looks down on you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees his Son and his Son's righteousness. That's what it means to be in Christ. But you cannot be holy on your own. But if you are in Christ, you're called to pursue holiness. So what's the first step in doing that? How do we actually pursue a life of holiness? That's what chapter 7 is is all about and where we're going to wrap up. Um, Chapter 7 is all about how the nation of Israel realigns and refocuses themselves on the Lord. Um, They actually end up even winning a battle against the Philistines. It's a total contrast to chapter 4 and how this whole thing started. Um, All the land that they lost to the Philistines is restored to them, back to Israel. They end up worshiping the Lord. But it kicks off um, with chapter 7, verse 3, which I'm going to throw up here for you. It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So right there is our application of of how do we pursue holiness? How do we even start that process? What's the first step? It looks like returning to the Lord. And I'm going to break that down for us. We see it all here in, uh, in verse 3. Returning to the Lord. He says, if you're doing that with all your heart, it looks like first and foremost, putting away the foreign gods from among you. Um, and I've already mentioned this kind of idea of repentance, but let me, let me go ahead and define what I mean by repentance. And the first half of it, of that definition, is putting away. Repentance looks like, here's, my, here's the things that I'm worshiping that aren't God, that I'm putting above God. Here's my sin. I'm going to turn away from them. I'm going to put those things away. That is the first process of, of, of re- part of repentance. And so real practically, just something that I want, if you're a journaler, I want you to just think through of what are you making, making gods of? What are the things that you're making gods in your life? Just like in the story, whatever it is, I can guarantee you, it is a really crappy god. And it, is, it has nothing to offer to you. Um, now, the second part of repentance we see here as well. He says, put away turn away from your sin, and then direct your heart towards God. The other half is turning towards God, turning towards Jesus to the reality that he died a death that you deserved in your place, and then walked out of the grave three days later so that you could have his life. 
you're turning, directing your heart back to that, back to the truth of the gospel. You're reorienting yourself to him, opening yourself up, up to God. Um, there's this wonderful story in Luke 15, and I'll try and tell it really quickly, um, about a father with two, two sons, and, and he gives them his inheritance, and it's a lot of money. And one son keeps it, knows that he's going to get it one day, and he's, he's fine. But there's another son who just takes all the money. He's been waiting for it. He knows his dad is loaded and rich, and he goes, okay, give me the money. Gets the money, and then he leaves home. He runs away, and he goes and squanders all, all of his money on things like sex and partying and just things of the world, and he's having a good time. And then you see that the story ends in him literally in a pig trough, eating with pigs, because nothing worked out for him. He lost all of his money. None of that stuff did him any good. He's just left feeling empty and alone and wanting. And there he is eating with pigs in the mud, and he thinks, oh my gosh, I freaking ruined it. I ruined this. My dad gave me all this money. I spent it. There's no, I have nowhere to go. I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. Maybe my dad, surely he's going to be mad at me. Of course he's going to be mad at me if I go back. But maybe he'll take me back as a slave because I can serve him and make up for what I lost and what I owed. I know he's going to be ticked, but maybe he'll take me back as a slave. So he gets up out of the picture off, starts making his way home. And what I love about the story is that it says the father was out there looking for him. He's, it, he's essentially on his front porch, and he sees his son coming from a long way off, and he starts running to him with his arms open And he meets his son. He embraces him. He's not mad at all. And the son is like, aren't you mad at me for squandering everything you gave me? I ruined it. I messed up. I made a mistake. And the dad is just like, no, I'm so glad you're home. I just care about you being home. I want you here home with me. And he brings him inside. They throw this wild party to celebrate the fact that his son has returned. And that's the same reality that you have with your heavenly father. I don't care what you did last night or last week or the mistakes that you think you're holding. Get rid of the shame. You don't need it. Return to the Lord, to a a father who's got his arms open and just wants you to be home with him again and celebrates your return. So that's kind of the process of repentance that I want you to see. Now we see this last thing here. The the third part of returning to the Lord looks like serving him. Um, Serving him alone. We see that in verse 3. And here's, here's my little tidbit on that. I think, and this comes from my own life, and I'm sure you can all relate to this. I think it is so easy for us to understand, and and it clicks that Jesus died in our place, walked out of the grave, I'm saved, right? And maybe that's true of you. I think it's so easy to understand that Jesus is Savior. I think so many of us, though, miss the part that he's also Lord, and that we're supposed to be obedient to him. It's okay for him to be Savior of our life, but it's less okay for him to be Lord of our life. And if you are in Christ, Christ wants all of you. There's no halfway in or halfway out. You're either either with him and in him or you're not. And if you are, you become his. Galatians 2.20 says, my life is no longer my own, but it is Christ who lives in me. That is a reality if you are in Christ. And so you're to serve him alone. Um, And so a simple question for you to think through is who and what are you living for? What are the implications of that? What's getting your, your, your time and your energy? What's making you anxious? What's making you overwhelmed? What gives you joy? What gives you pleasure? And why? Just think through those things. Are you serving something other than God? And is Jesus both Savior and Lord of your life? Now, here's what I want to close with. Notice how the end uh, of verse 3 
closes. Um, we're pulling all this application from it. Put away, direct your heart, um, serve him only. And then it says, if you do these things, it says he will deliver you. That's a promise. There is a promise there that he will deliver us. He will set us free. If we are returning to him, he will set us free from whatever is holding us captive. Whether that's all the ways that we misunderstand him or the things that we are seeking life from that are never designed to give it to us or whatever it is that you are bringing into this room right now. If you return to the Lord, if you are with the Lord, he has the power to set you free. And I believe with everything in me that if you are in Christ and you are, are with him, there is a wholeness and a freedom and an abundance of life that you could never muster up on your own. And I know that there are so many of us in here right now that desperately need abundance of life, desperately need hope. He offers it, and it is indestructible, and it is connected to him. And my hope and my prayer is that you just simply reach out to him. Just start with, Lord, I need that. That's, that's our prayer for you. Do not leave this room without, without considering that of, Lord, could you change my life? Could you give me that hope? Could you give me that abundance of life? Could you give me that freedom and that wholeness that is connected to you? I need you to deliver me from this grief, from this pain, from this hurt, from whatever it might be. Um, and it only comes through Christ and what he's done for you in a relationship with him. With that said, let me pray and we'll get back into worship. Father, we love you. We thank you that you uh, have made your word available to us so that we can know you and know your love, know your truth and your forgiveness and what it means for us. Um, Father, I pray that we would listen. I pray that we would hear it. Um, I pray that your spirit would do a work in us so that um, we just catch a glimpse of how good you are, how beautiful you are, how desirable you are, and how undeniable you are in our lives. Father, I know that there are many of us in here um, that are hurting and are confused and frustrated and, and in shock, Lord, and I just pray that even in these next moments as we're just sung over and, and prayed over, Lord, that, um, that you would meet us in, in whatever place we're in. Father, we desperately need you. Um, it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.